This is Books and Nachos, a podcast for those of us who find excitement in the pages of a good book. Fiction and nonfiction, graphic novels, and more. We're here to help you find something great to read. In 1985, Rambo exploded into theaters in Rambo First Blood Part 2. Despite the first Rambo film, First Blood, being arguably the better film, with Rambo First Blood Part 2, the iconic version of Rambo was born, bare-chested, red headband, and a giant machine gun in his hands. I'm Arnie, host of Books and Nachos, and you can hear my review of Rambo First Blood Part 2, the movie, on Now Playing, our movie review podcast at nowplayingpodcast.com. But here on Books and Nachos today, I'm looking at the novelization of the movie Rambo First Blood Part 2. Now please, before you push stop, let me explain why I'm looking at the novelization of this movie. Because if you're thinking that Books and Nachos has lowered itself looking at a movie novelization and that this novelization isn't worthy of critical analysis, I completely understand your line of thinking. It stands to reason that books which are adapted to film are worth reviewing as they start off as literature. But films adapted to prose are usually nothing more than pulpy, shallow, and a cheap way for a film studio's merchandising arm to capitalize on movies they expect to hit big. But before you hit stop, give me a couple minutes to explain why Rambo First Blood Part 2 breaks that mold. I have a lot of experience reading movie novelizations. When I was growing up, a locally owned bookstore, Chapter One Books, had a selection of its store entirely devoted to film adaptations. They were such big business in the 80s. And it was that section of the bookstore that I was most drawn to. There, I picked up novelizations of Ghostbusters 1 and 2, Spies Like Us, Clue, which had multiple endings like the film, including a fourth ending the film didn't have. The first two Indiana Jones films, all three Star Wars films, many of the Star Trek films, and many, many more. Let me tell you, having read well over 50 Moody V adaptation novels, they usually aren't worthy of critical analysis. And in 90% of the movie novelizations I have read, the lack of caring comes through loud and clear. Most novelizations are hastily written, sloppily paced, and they add very little to the final film. Perhaps the only redeeming part of many novelizations for me was that since they were usually based on the shooting scripts, they'd often incorporate cutscenes from the final film, like Ferris Bueller eating pancreas or the Goonies fighting the octopus. But in this day and age of DVD cutscenes and YouTube, now you can see those deleted scenes for yourself without having to read a novelized adaptation of them. And of course, sometimes the novel would bear hardly any resemblance to the final film, such as A Nightmare on Elm Street 3, where the novel was based on Wes Craven's early script, and the book ends up with barely any resemblance to the completed film, as rewritten by Chuck Russell and Frank Darabont. But while I said 90% of the movie novelizations fit that mold, there's that 10% that don't. I dare say 100% of movie novelizations are crass attempts at merchandising, but sometimes there are elements that elevate that novelization to become a literary work worthy of independent analysis. For example, in the three Star Wars prequels, all the authors had extensive meetings with George Lucas and used ideas from him to create subplots and scenarios in their novelizations that weren't in the films. Many people consider Star Wars Episode Three, the movie to be the highlight reel and the real meat of the story in the novelization. 
For both Hulk films, the novelizations were written by Peter David, an incredible writer, one of my favorites, who wrote the Incredible Hulk comics for 12 years at Marvel, and had also written an original Hulk novel set in the comic universe. In all of these cases, the author was able to use their background or research to definitively add more depth to the novel than existed on the screen. In these cases, yes, I think the novelizations are worthy of their own analysis. But of all the movie novelizations I've heard of, I can't think of any that spiked my curiosity more than when I found out First Blood Part 2 had been novelized. When we decided to review the Rambo series for Now Playing, I thought one of us should go back and read the original novel First Blood. And as the biggest Rambo fan of the three of us hosts, I did it myself. When a search on Amazon showed me there were also novels for Rambos 2 and 3, I rolled my eyes, having a montage in my mind of the lackluster 80s films I'd read novels of. But then I saw who wrote these novels. David Morell, the man who created Rambo in 1972, the acclaimed author, returned to write the novelizations. I mean, think about it. This man created Rambo, but had absolutely no say in the character's development after 1972. The screenplays for Rambo 2, 3, and 4 were all written with no input for him. Hell, spoiler alert for First Blood, at the end of Morell's novel First Blood, Rambo dies brutally. What in the world would make Morell want to return to that Rambo character, and what would it be like for him to write a novel starring his most famous brainchild in a story he had no say in? In all the novelizations I've read of movies, I can't ever think of an author writing a book which was adapted to film and then later adapting someone else's sequel screenplay back into novel form. Usually, the author's original vision carries the sequels, even when it's so incestuous as Thomas Harris writing Hannibal as a sequel to Silence of the Lambs or Michael Crichton writing The Lost World as a follow-up to Jurassic Park, both then adapted into films. But Morell's adapting someone else's story of his character was such a curiosity to me that I just had to read copies of his novelizations for Rambos 2 and 3. Knowing how far the Rambo sequel films stray from the spirit and concept of Morell's original First Blood novel, I needed to see how Rambo's original creator would handle those stories. To the most minor of degrees, Morell himself addresses this in the author note preceding Rambo 2. He writes, quote, In my novel First Blood, Rambo died. In the film, he lives. That's all Morell has to say about it in the novel. But as I read through Morell's adaptation, a lot more came through. So if you're still with me, let's take a look at the novelization of Rambo 2. And this is more of a critical analysis than a review, looking at how Morell's work deviates from that of the movie. There will be some spoilers involved, though I will stay as spoiler-free as possible. The basic story of the novel is, as one would expect, almost identical to that of the film. We start with Rambo imprisoned for the crimes that he committed in the first movie or book, when he's visited by Colonel Troutman with an offer. If Rambo agrees to return to Vietnam looking for remaining POWs held in the prison camp where he had been detained for six months, he would get a presidential pardon. Rambo agrees, and in an operation run by CIA agent Murdoch, Rambo returns to Vietnam where he's aided by indigenous agent Ko Bao. Rambo returns to the camp and finds the POWs, and against orders, Rambo rescues one of the prisoners who's being tortured. Murdoch orders Rambo to be left in Vietnam, and all hell breaks loose with Rambo fighting the North Vietnamese and the Soviets. But while Morell doesn't take liberties with the overall story, he does tweak it for his novel. Were he rewriting the screenplay, what he did would have been called script polishing, not changing the script too much, but just adding minor improvements to dialogue, action, and characterization. If I were to sum up all of Morell's changes in three words, I'd say he added realism. Every single scene of this book feels far more real than in the movie. 
The characters are deeper and more human. The action more violent, more dangerous. This is seen in a hundred different ways in the novel. Firstly, Morell, an accomplished novelist, realizes the most important part of any story is character motivation. In First Blood, Morell told the story from two distinct points of view, that of Sheriff Teasel and that of Rambo, thus giving us insights inside each character's head as to why they were acting as they did. Each character had clear motivation for their fight. In the sequel novel, Morell adds much more of that depth to Rambo's new enemies. For example, the Viet Cong Sergeant Tay who runs the prison camp is revealed to be the same one who held and tortured Rambo years before. Rambo's escape earned the sergeant a demotion and a career in exile, never able to transfer out of the camp. This gave the sergeant true motivation to hunt Rambo the second time, to repair his tarnished reputation and to have revenge for the years he's toiled at the camp. Rambo's first escape caused Tay to become an expert tracker, vowing no prisoner would escape him again, and those tracking skills pay off as Tay stalks Rambo through the jungle. This also gives Rambo a personal reason to hate this man, not just because he's Vietnamese, but because he's the one who gave Rambo the scars that cover his body. Their struggle, so flat and uninteresting in the final film, is given incredible weight in the novel, and when Rambo has his victory over Tay, the reader can celebrate with Rambo, not just because he killed an anonymous Vietnamese enemy, but because Tay was a worthy adversary who had haunted Rambo's memories for over a decade. That same type of characterization is given to the Soviets who come to interrogate Rambo, Lieutenant Podovsk, and the torturer Lieutenant Yashin. In the film, they're just evil because they're Russians, and in the 80s, that was enough. But Morel takes that a step further. On film, an anonymous Viet Cong kills Ko. But in the novel, it's Yashin flying a helicopter with an M134 minigun that could fire 6,000 rounds per minute called the Dragon. This killing of Ko elevates Yashin as a villain. Now, instead of just being a tough, muscular Russian, he took from Rambo the first human connection Rambo had formed in almost 20 years. Yashin is evil, dangerous, and deadly, and when Rambo fights him in the helicopter, there's another personal reason for this violence. And as for Potovisk, he's now no longer defying logic by attacking Rambo in a helicopter, but rather, more realistically, stays back at the base to coordinate the hunt, and he's quickly dispatched without ceremony when Rambo returns to rescue the POWs. The biggest change in the novel is Rambo's relationship to Ko. In the film, Ko is a female agent fighting alongside a male hero, and by Hollywood standards, that's enough to justify a romance. But in the novel, Morel doesn't abide by that cliché. I was shocked early in the novel when Morel has Rambo reflecting on how the violence in Vietnam made the thought of physical intimacy with a woman unbearable. Rambo wasn't interested in romance, and to Morel's credit, neither was Ko. Rather than being someone for Rambo to fall for and then avenge, Ko is given a very detailed backstory of how her husband was killed and she came to work for the CIA in exchange for her brother and her son being given asylum in California. Ko doesn't want to go back to America with Rambo as his lover. She wants to go see her son and ask Rambo to marry her as a sham just long enough so she can be a citizen and then stay in America safe with her son. And this isn't something that just comes up out of the blue as it does in the movie. Ko begins campaigning for this early on, first asking to go with Rambo when Rambo's initial extraction was to come, and then asking again as they escape the prison camp. Eventually, Rambo does relent. Now, Morel does imply that Rambo and Ko were starting to develop feelings for each other out of mutual admiration and respect. And it's important to the character of Rambo that he starts to allow someone to be close to him, something he hadn't done since before he first went to Vietnam. But in the film, this is all delivered in the span of minutes and it feels forced and unjustified. In the novel, Morel sells it much better. And when Ko is killed, Rambo's heartbreak resonates. In the film, you may think, oh boy, you killed Rambo's woman, you better watch out and be excited for the action to come. 
but in the book, it is much, much more. But the most in-depth characterization is that of our titular character, Rambo himself. The Rambo in Morel's novelization, First Blood Part 2, is in every way but one a continuation of the character Morel created in his original novel, that one difference being that this Rambo still has his brain matter inside of his skull. The Rambo here is still smarting from the events in the first novel, and still angry at Teasel for pushing him to cause the destruction he did. There are several callbacks to the events of the first novel, and some of them actually get a little confusing. For example, in this novelization, Rambo recalls his encounter with the bats in the cave, but the bats were in the novel First Blood, in the movie Rambo encountered rats in the cave. And yet there are also references to Stallone's monologue at the end of the First Blood movie, so the world in which Morel's novelization of First Blood Part 2 exists kind of straddles the film and book versions of First Blood, and could be confusing to someone familiar only with one or the other. But here in the sequel novel, the character of Rambo has grown. In the original novel, Morel dropped a reference to Rambo's knowledge of Zen. Now Rambo has grown to follow the Zen religion, though Morel states openly that Rambo does it as a defense mechanism to detach from the horrors of life, more than out of a true devotion to the philosophy. But the exploration of Zen also ties in nicely to Rambo's use of the bow as a weapon. As it's described in the novel, the archer is a symbolic person in the Zen religion. But Morel also ties Rambo's archery into his Navajo descent, giving us scenes of Rambo's early life in a Navajo village learning how to use the bow as a weapon. Morel finds in the Rambo character reasons for his actions, reasons that just don't exist on the screen version. And thus, in this novel, Rambo feels like a human at the peak of physical capabilities, whereas on screen he comes across kind of as a flat superhero, Superman who traded in a cape for some exploding arrows. Finally, Rambo's relationship to Troutman is explored deeper, creating a father-son bond between the two characters. In both this novel and the one before, Rambo's father is mentioned as being abusive and as having trying to kill Rambo, so the creation of this father figure gives Rambo another person to whom he can be close, another personal connection, and allows Rambo's story arc of salvation to come to a close in a very satisfying manner. I dare say, in every way, the Rambo in this novel is better than the Rambo we saw on screen. In addition to the better characterizations, Morel adds realism to the action, perhaps at times too much realism. Morel writes in the author's note that all the weapons depicted in the novel are real weapons, though Rambo's trademark knife and bow were built for the film, but also available as real weapons. Morel's in-depth depiction of weaponry of all types at the times seemed to read like intro to guns and ammo for dummies. In reading, I learned far more about guns, arrows, and their devastating power than I ever really felt I needed to know, such as the Dragon minigun was developed by General Electric. So think about that the next time you put your popcorn in your GE microwave. But in addition to being meticulous in his description of the guns, Morel also knows how they're used. Instead of allowing, as the film does, for Rambo to stand out in the open with Viet Cong shooting at him and every bullet missing, here Rambo uses tactics to elude and confuse the enemy and guerrilla warfare to ambush them. In the film, Rambo's use of bow and arrow seem out of left field. In the book, it's explained how the arrow is Rambo's weapon of stealth and the advantage of its quiet and lethal nature give him the upper hand. And Morel wisely changes the film's climax. In the movie, Rambo's able to move almost at the speed of light, firing a bazooka at a helicopter before the pilot can squeeze off a single round. But in the novel, the final flight plays out very differently, and while it may not have the same visceral pleasure of Rambo looking the Russian in the eyes, 
it's far more believable and rewarding. That's not to say every change Morel made was perfectly done. The POW Rambo originally rescues, named Banks, is given a lot more dialogue, which seems to be played for humor, such as his delirious confusion of American holidays, saying trick-or-treat in reference to the 4th of July. If these are jokes, then they fall flat. And if they're trying to show Banks is delirious, then it fails in that regard as well, because I didn't get it. Also, the final ending, Morel writes in the battle of Rambo vs. Murdoch, is logical for the characters, but perhaps strains realism of the circumstances. Finally, Morel's final scene between Rambo and Troutman, expressing their paternal relationship, seems a bit out of character. These are men of action, not men of words. So for them to say these things aloud just didn't fit. But with those minor quibbles, Morel's novel is a distinct improvement over the screenplay original and a fascinating object lesson in how a story that seems so silly can, with just some very minor changes, become a grounded and gritty character piece. But alas, Morel is hamstrung by the story of the film. I get the impression Morel really wants to write a taut thriller as he did with the original First Blood. He tries to get inside the villain's head whenever he can, but the Soviets and Vietnamese enemies are introduced too late in the story, and Murdoch is too far removed from the action, so we simply get here the best Morel can do with what he was given. If you find the entire concept of Rambo's 2's story to be silly and uninteresting, then there's absolutely nothing in this novel for you. However, if you enjoyed the original First Blood, in novel or movie form, I encourage you to read Morel's adaptation of Rambo First Blood Part 2 to get more of the great characterization of our hero. And if you're a student of writing, I'd encourage you to both watch the movie and read this book as an object lesson in the right and wrong ways to write characters. Now, of course, this novel is long out of print, but I was able to get a copy for only $2 used on Amazon. And surprisingly, as I finish Morel's version of Rambo First Blood Part 2, I find myself very hungry for Morel's adaptation of Rambo 3 and ever wishing that Morel would have returned to novelize that most recent Rambo film. And you can hear my thoughts on all the Rambo films at Now Playing, our movie review podcast at nowplayingpodcast.com, where Brock, Jacob, and I are reviewing Run Rambo film each week through November. And as we review each movie, I will continue to review Morel's Rambo novels here at Books and Nachos. And join me in two weeks as I sit down to talk with the author, David Morell himself. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to Books and Nachos. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes. And you can catch back episodes at our website, booksandnachos.com. The music for Books and Nachos is The Right Prescription by Chai Weapon, which can be downloaded at podsafeaudio.com. Books and Nachos is copyright 2010, Venganza Media Incorporated.